All right, good morning. Go ahead and turn to Revelation chapter 1, if you would. Revelation chapter 1. Um, I know a lot of folks were sick last week, and so there should be a number of you that did not get the handout from last week. So, who's in that boat? Anybody need a handout from last? I also have three or, well, four copies of the one before that. So, I have a handout number three and number four. You found four. Anybody need these? Tell you what I'm going to do. I'm just going to give them to you, Brother Andy. You take what you need and (laughs) pass them around then. All right, I'm going to put you on the spot just a little bit here as we get started. Would somebody turn to and read the verse, it's in chapter 1, so uh, that gives the outline of the book, the basic outline of the book of Revelation. Somebody turn to that verse, all right, Brother Andy. That is correct, all right? Uh, Of course, that's Jesus speaking to John, the Apostle John here, and he's telling him to write, and he enumerates three things, if you want to say there. He told him to write the things which he had seen, and of course, at the moment, the point in time that he's speaking that, that could only be what is contained in chapter 1 up to that point. All right, the vision that John sees and of Jesus, and then, of course, uh, I, I believe with that, then the Lord also directed him to write the, you know, the greeting and the introduction of the book and so on, those first uh, nine verses or so before John mentions about what he saw specifically. And then he says to write the things which are, which uh, you could word that, the, the things of the present time, the the you know, the things going on, that kind of an idea. In other words, what, what's happening now? And in the book of Revelation, of course, that would be uh, technically verse nine, 19 there, you know, verse 19, 20 of chapter 1, but then chapters 2 and 3, all right, which, com- which are comprised of these seven letters to the seven churches here. Because in chapter 4, verse 1, we see a transition taking place where John is uh, called up to heaven, and the Lord tells him he's going to show him the things which shall be hereafter, and which, of course, is the last part of that verse in ni- verse 19, the last statement there, right, the things which shall be hereafter. So, really, the, the things which are, you know, fall in line up to that point, then chapter 4, chapters 4 and following, in the book of Revelation are the future things that John is to be shown uh, at, at the, as, as of speaking from the time that Jesus says the words of what to write there in verse 19 of chapter 1. So these, uh, this, is, this is a key verse really in uh, understanding the book of Revelation. And uh, we'll, of course, as we get into the future things, we'll see a lot more uh, reasons and so on of all that, but uh, John is told to write these things, and then this statement continues on. Then Jesus says, "The mystery in verse twenty, the mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the idea is the mystery of the seven golden candlesticks, 
And in other words, he's going to explain what those things are, what they symbolize. And he tells John then that the seven golden candlesticks that he saw in that vision. Now keep in mind, I, I envision it, so to speak, going this way. All right, Jesus is, this is still in that condition that John sees Jesus, right? In this glorified condition where he's standing in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. He's standing there with the seven stars in his right hand, all right, as he's speaking here. And I think in many ways you could say that that's still continuing on as he's dictating these seven letters to John. This is how John sees Jesus right now. In, is, is when I say right now, I'm talking about in relation to what we're seeing here in the book of Revelation. So he's saying, I'm going to explain to you what these candlesticks are and what these stars are, all right? We, we, we began talking about this part last week, all right? Of course, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, which I'm not going to rehash all that we looked at last week on that, but just to suffice it to say, I believe that this is speaking of the pastors, uh, the leaders of these churches uh, as they are held uh, because it's clear to see that from the content of this, that whoever these stars are, they are someone that is both part of these churches as well as someone who is responsible for the state of these churches, at least, you know, responsible to a degree. I don't believe that the Lord holds a pastor personally responsible for the individual acts of every person because there's obviously no way you can control that, but... This, the condition and state of a church is obviously a great part of a pastor's responsibility and, uh, and so on. So um, I, I think, again, based on a number of reasons, I, I believe these stars, these angels of these churches, because remember, and, and we looked at some examples of this in, in, in the New Testament, but the word angel, the word translated angel, is basic, the, the basic idea of that word is a messenger a representative, uh, and sometimes that word in the Bible is translated ambassador. Uh, I mean, it's someone who's sent, with, you know, for a purpose of delivering a message. And uh, it fit, it's in keeping, I think, as well with verse 3 of chapter 1, where that blessing is pronounced, but it's stated in such a way, remember, blessed is he, singular, that readeth, and they plural, that hear and heed these words. Again, I, I think the whole setting of this fits in with that, as well as, I mean, the whole setting of the book of Revelation is intended, it's given to the churches uh, generally, but then there's parts of it that are given to, you know, written to each specific church, all right? And so when you, when you think about that, you could ask, okay, are these letters, because look at verse 1 of chapter 2, uh, unto the angel of the church of Ephesus, right? So that is specified there. But then it says, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. He says, I know thy works. And as we talked about last week, uh, just as a reminder, those T pronouns, what people call those archaic pronouns, you know, thee, thy, thou, thine, those are singular. The Y pronouns, ye, you, your, those are plural, all right? And you see both are used in these letters, 
There's, there, the, the, it begins with, in fact, most of the letter has the T pronouns because he's, he's talking specifically to this angel of the church, but at the same time, it's not just to him. We know that clearly because, look, if you jump down to verse 7 of the same letter, uh, chapter 2, verse 7, he that hath an ear, of course, that's singular, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto who? The churches, plural, all right? So again, each of these letters is, I mean, you know, and, and this is what we're going to talk about more specifically today. There's, there's a, a uh, there are levels here, if you want to say, of, of interpreting and understanding these letters here. But they are directed to these churches through their angels or through these messengers, which again, I, I would argue are their pastors, the one responsible to communicate these to these churches. All right, so we see that's what the seven stars are. And of course, it's very clear in verse 20. What, are, what do the seven candlesticks that John sees, what do they represent? The seven churches, all right? And, and you'll see the seven churches, uh, very, that's a redundant theme here in the book of Revelation, these seven churches. Now, the number seven is an important number. Uh, and specifically, it's very, very much used in the book of Revelation. It's a number that speaks of completion, and, and you could think of it this way as well. All right, as using the number seven with these churches, all right, it's, it's, it's talking to these specific seven churches, but the, being the number seven, and so on, this is representative of all the Lord's churches together as well. It's... it's it's a number that speaks of that, of completion and, and so on. So, um, and, and again, that fits with how the whole New Testament uh, is given and lays out as well. But seven letters, that's the, the title, if you want to say, of this lesson. Seven letters to seven churches. And again, we've already looked at part of this. I want to specifically pick up on Roman numeral number three in, your, uh, in the handout that you have. Uh, and I believe that these, uh, the things we want to see under this are very important. We didn't get to this last week. I didn't want to try to just hurry it all in in, in uh, 30 seconds at the end because uh, this, is, this is important. So before we get into this, let's go ahead and have a word of prayer. All right. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you specifically for the book of Revelation. And Lord, I pray that you would help us. Uh, to receive the blessing that comes with hearing and heeding these words. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, these seven letters. All right, seven very real and vital New Testament epistles really are uh, often overlooked in the New Testament. You know, you think of how many people ask the question, how many epistles are there in the New Testament, you know? Uh, well, there's seven right here that are very often overlooked, not counted, but really they are. They're, they're, in a way, they're individual letters, epistles written to each of these churches, but of course they're included all together as well. And uh, any of the New Testament epistles, by the way, are specifically and directly attend, uh, intended for who they are written to, but they also have, you know, broader application as well. Uh, this, there's no different in these letters, but, but what we see incorporated here, it really emphasizes these points, okay? Uh, so these, these seven epistles here, let's consider these 
some, some principles about this here this morning before we actually get into looking at these seven letters, which we won't do uh, this morning. But keep in mind as well that the entire book of Revelation, chapter 1, specifies this at least twice. Uh, the entire book of Revelation is intended for who? Not meant to be a trick question, but. <laughs> well, verse 1, in a way, to the Lord's servants, okay? But then twice in chapter 1, verse 4, I believe it is, verse 11, specify that it is also John's to be writing to whom? The seven churches. And then it specifies later the seven churches which are in Asia. And then it even names those seven, which are the seven that these seven letters are addressed to. But the whole book of Revelation is intended for these churches, not just these letters, right? The whole book of Revelation. So keep that in mind as well. But these seven epistles, all right? Uh, so the seven letters here. So seven epistles here, all right? Obviously, uh, number one is an epistle, a letter that's addressed to the angel of the church at Ephesus, but it's also, of course, intended for the church at Ephesus. That's the case with every one of these, as we've kind of mentioned there. Right? So you have, in, uh, you have four uh, letters in chapter 2. You have three in chapter 3. All right, so you have the epistle to Ephesus. You have the epistle to Smyrna. Now think about this. We have other writing in the New Testament to the church at Ephesus, don't we? There's the book of Ephesians written to the same church, all right? Uh, so you have the, the, the epistle of the church at Smyrna. We don't have any other uh, writing in the New Testament to them. Uh, you have the epistle to the church at Pergamos in chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. Uh, we don't have any other writing in the New Testament directly addressed to them either, you have the epistle to Thyatira, the church at Thyatira, uh, chapter 2, verses 18 through 29, which, by the way, is the longest of these seven letters right there, uh, for whatever that's worth to you. Uh, then you have number five is the epistle to the church at Sardis, beginning in chapter 3. You have the epistle to the church at Philadelphia in chapter 3, 7 through 13. Then, of course, last, the epistle to the church at Laodicea in chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. Uh, but each of these letters is addressed to, through the angel of that church, but for that specific church. Um, but then also they are each, they each have statements that all the churches are to, you know, to, to pay attention to those letters. So also consider, we'll, we'll speak more about that in just a second. Let me, I, I tried to, I have a map at home, which is a big map, but it didn't have all seven of these cities specified on the map. I was disappointed in that. But anyway, if you have maps in, in the back of your Bible, you can find a map that has these, uh, these cities all listed on there. Some, some different Bibles have maps that might say like the, uh, the, the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul, for instance. That's probably one that you would find these cities on. But if you were to look at these, you would see that all of these cities are in an area that would be called Asia Minor. All right? it, it is in what is today, in modern day, western Turkey, the country of Turkey, 
the western part of uh, Turkey. Uh, there's, a, there's water to the wet boundary on the west, which is the Aegean Sea, and across that sea is the country of Greece. And there's a lot of other New Testament history that takes place in Greece. In the southern part of Greece is, is in the Bible what we, what we see written as Achaia. Uh, for instance, Corinth was in that area. Athens and so on. And then the northern part of Greece was what is called Macedonia. And there's uh, other like Philippi, Thessalonica and so on. Those are cities that are in Macedonia. Uh, but, <coughs> excuse me, just off the coast of Asia Minor is an island. It may not appear on all your maps there, but one of, there's a number of islands there. But one of those, a small island, is the Isle of Patmos, which is where John was banished to, which, where he was exiled uh, as he w- was shown and what to write for the book of Revelation. All right? so, but if you were to see those cities on the map, you'll notice that they basically, um, I'm not going to draw, but if, if you go kind of directly east of Patmos, the first city you would come to on the map would be Ephesus. All right? And then if you go in a clockwise not quite circle, but in a circuit for sure, from Ephesus to Smyrna, Pergamos is probably the farthest north, Thyatira, uh, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea is a, there's, there's kind of three cities that were spoken of in the New Testament that are, were together, kind of forming like a tri-city area, Laodicea, Colossae, and Hierapolis. And of course, we have a, a, another New Testament epistle to the church at Colossae, and also the book of Philemon uh, was written to the man Philemon, but apparently, you know, it, it, from all we can see, he lived in Colossae, and it's very possible that the church in Colossae met in his house, or uh, probably in his house, uh, but Laodicea, and, and in the book of Colossians, the, the church at Laodicea is even mentioned there as well. Paul says that he wrote an epistle to that church. Now, we don't have that in the Scripture, so obviously it was not an uh, an inspired part of Scripture. All right, it was just, uh, Paul wrote numerous other letters to churches, but they weren't Scripture. The difference is the ones in the Bible are Scripture. They were inspired by God, all right? The others are just probably very sincere letters and, and, and probably a lot of godly wisdom and so on in them, but letters that Paul wrote on his own, all right, weren't directed you know, specifically by God as the books of Scripture are. But there are many others. There, he probably wrote at least four letters to the church at Corinth that we know from uh, historical documents and so on. Only two are in the Bible. All right, so, but anyway, uh, so you have, have those churches. And again, basically, it's kind of like a circle. Now, think about this for a second. How does John see Jesus in this vision? He sees him as in the midst of, these churches are around Jesus. Kind of the same, it's almost like if you put a, uh, I, I was going to say put a picture of Jesus, but don't try to do that. Uh, you know, envision Jesus on the map right there in the middle of this area, and these churches are around him. It, it's kind of fitting with that as well. But these seven churches, seven letters. Uh, now, notice the structure. This is in the handout here, and you could, you could uh, in fact, we'll, we'll, this is basically the approach that we'll intend to use when we look at each of these seven letters. 
right? There is a very common structure in all of these letters. Now, when I say that, all right, as we get into it, there are a few exceptions and, and some things a little out of order, so to speak, but for the most part, they follow this seven-fold structure. All right, again, the number seven is very prominent in Revelation, but the structure of these epistles. There is this consistent and rather heptatic, or in other words, group by sevens, structure in these letters. First of all, in every letter, you see the church addressed. All right? Uh, Unto the angel of the church at, or, you know, uh, the first one, verse 1 of chapter 2, unto the angel of the church of Ephesus. All right? Now, and, and let me just mention this, by the way. You'll notice that in some cases it says in instead of of, and in the case of the Laodiceans, it has a little bit different wording. It says unto the church of the Laodiceans. It doesn't say the church of Laodicea, it says the church of the Laodiceans. Some people make a big deal of those distinctions. I don't really think there's reason to, okay? They're just a variety of ways of saying kind of the same thing, all right? Um, And anyway, but you see that the church is addressed, and then the second key element you see in every one of these letters is what, I guess I got to advance this, sorry. You see the church addressed, and then you see the Christ described. In in, in every one of these letters, as Jesus tells John what to write, he tells him who he's writing to, right? And then Jesus gives a description of himself. Again, for instance, in verse 1 of chapter 2, he says, Under the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith... You'll see that phrase in all of these, right? And then you see a brief description, but it's different in every letter. It's a different description in every letter. Here he says, He that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. All right, and I'll get into those things later, but in every one of these letters you see a very brief description of Christ, giving a a description of himself, as he's addressing these churches. And I believe in each of these instances, this description is important with what is said in the letter. All right? And it's different in every letter, this description. But you will notice that for the most part, there's a couple exceptions in this, but for the most part, every one of these descriptions are taken from what John writes about the vision in chapter 1. All right? For instance, that one right there. John wrote that in chapter 1. How did he see Christ? In the midst of the churches, seven stars in his right hand. All right, you'll see that throughout these, these seven letters. So you see Christ is described, and then the third flow in these, in these letters is you'll see a commendation. Uh, I say, just for alliteration, a commendation deserved here, but in other words, you see Christ speaking commendable things to these churches. All right, now, by the way, this is true for the most part, but there are two exceptions to that point in these seven letters. Two of the churches Christ never says anything positive about, other than the fact that he calls them churches, which is a positive thing, but 
He doesn't give them any word. For instance, again, in, in the letter to the church at Ephesus in verse 2, I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience and how thou canst not bear them which are evil and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not and hast found them liars. And he goes on. But you see, he's, he's writing, he's, he's, he's noting things that are good about that church that he's commending them for. These are good things. All right? But then the next step you see, he then talks about what's wrong with the church. So you see a condemnation delivered. Uh, and, and for instance, in we'll keep using the, the letter to Ephesus here as the example because it's real close here. And in uh, verse 4, he says, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee. Right? So then he speaks about his I was going to say his problem that he has with that church, but the idea is that there's something wrong with that, okay? And something that needs to be addressed. That's, that's the idea, all right? But as I said, with number three, there are two churches that are exceptions to that. Two of these seven churches he does not give any commendable words to, but also in number four here, condemnation, there are two churches that receive no condemnation from the Lord. Again, there's, these are things, I think, that are worthy to take note of, all right, when we, when we look at these, all right? But two, there are two churches that are accepted in that, all right? So number five, then, after he tells them what he sees is wrong, he then tells them how to fix it. And that's in keeping with the Bible. You know, 2 Timothy chapter 3, uh, verse 16, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is what? Profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That's, that's in full keeping with, number one, God's character, but how God deals with His people. All right? But you see that here. Correction that's needed is given, you know, the, how to get it right is given for the church, and then also the Lord issues a consequence if they don't heed that correction, all right? And then seventh, you have what I'll just call a challenge issued. Now, arguably, this could be broken into two parts because it is in two parts in each of these letters, all right? Challenge issued has both, it has the idea, you'll see the phrase, he that hath an ear, let him hear. In other words, the Lord is pointing out that people need to listen to what he's saying. Now, it only makes sense that people listen to what the Lord's saying, right? Only makes sense. But attached with that then, in every one, every seven of these letters, you'll see a specific promise from the Lord given to those who overcome. All right, and we'll talk more about that later. I'll just say this right here. I do believe that each of these statements, uh, to him that overcometh, they pertain, they refer to saved people. In the New Testament, the overcomers are saved people. It's not a special class of Christians. Just like disciples in the New Testament. It's not a special class of Christians. Disciples means a follower of the Lord. That's what a Christian is. That doesn't mean everything in your life is directly following the Lord, but that's why we get correction and so on from Him, right? We all need that. There's not a Christian alive who doesn't need to be corrected from the Lord. We saw that in Hebrews chapter 12, right? God chastens every child of His, not just some, 
He chastens every child of his. All right, so you see, you see this, the, the challenge issued, which again has a twofold thing. Better listen up, better give heed, pay attention. And remember, at the very beginning of the book, it, spe- it promised a special blessing to those that do what? Listen up, pay attention. All right, so it's worth listening to. And then here in these letters, he specifies a special promise. Maybe that's part of the whole idea of that blessing that's just given in a generic way at the beginning, right? There's a blessing to him that overcomes. And all of those blessings have to do with our future in, in heaven. Uh, arguably, at least one of them has to do with the future here on the earth in the millennium, but but they all have to do with future blessings when we're with the Lord, put it that way, all right? And so this is the, the structure <clears throat> that you see here. And I also want to mention this because of uh, a question I was asked last week uh, after Sunday school as well. But again, notice the letter is given to each church, right? But there's a, you know, specifically... He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. And then it says, to him that overcometh. Let me just say that that overcoming, again, I believe is, 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 is synonymous with salvation. But salvation is an individual thing. It's not a corporate thing. It never has been in human history. In the Old Testament, you think about Israel and maybe many people tend to think about Israel as being a group of all saved people. That is not the case. All right, God dealt, and, and the same is true, by the way, for the New Testament church. Now, I believe it's, it's God's intention that every member of a church is saved, okay? But my point is, it's possible for unsaved people to be part of churches. Just like in the Old Testament, it was possible and very often the case that unsaved people, people that, you know, they did not have a relationship to God in, through faith, that they were part of the nation of Israel. And so people can be part of that, you know, I say part of. Now again, arguably, in a way they're not part of, but they fall in with, they mix with, the, the group of people that are looked at as the Lord's institution for that time, just like today, the Lord's institution for today is the New Testament church. And there can be people who are unsaved that are part of churches. They're in, mixed in the churches and so on. And I'm not specifying any individuals in this here or anything like that. I'm just laying out some principles here, all right? And so the Lord says... To him that overcometh. It doesn't say to them that overcome. Because it's an individual thing between you and the Lord. And it always has been. Always will. There were many. Remember in the book of Hebrews, we saw there were many uh, that came out of Egypt with Israel. Now, Egypt's deliverance from from Egypt. Let me reword that. Israel's deliverance from Egypt is a picture of salvation, but again, that doesn't mean that every individual that came out of Egypt with Israel was a saved person. There's a principle that pictures salvation there, yes, but that does again, it, it, it's all salvation is never a corporate thing, it's an individual thing. Just like, I don't know if you remember Je- Jeff Faggart. He, he's, he says this statement a lot, or has. I've heard him say it numerous times, but anyway, you know, 
speaking of America and so on, you know, he says, America's not a Christian nation because not God saves individuals, right? You know, there's not a nation that's, you know, a group of saved people, so to speak, making up the entire nation. But anyway, salvation is an individual thing. It's not a corporate thing. So therefore, it's always possible that there are mixed multitudes involved in God's working, of working through institutions and so on, okay? Um, so that's important to keep in mind, all right? Then the last part that I wanted to talk about here, and this is, I, I think this is extremely important for studying the book of Revelation as well. These seven letters, there's these epistles, the structure, but how do we interpret these, all right? Now, again, in a general sense, we believe that the proper way to interpret the Bible is... All right, sometimes it's called the literal method of interpretation. And then sometimes that's given in a more specific way of a grammatical historical interpretation. In other words, we believe that everything in the Bible, I mean, God gave the Bible in language, all right? It's words communicated from God. He put it in human language so humans could understand it. And uh, we believe that God intends that what he said, the words that he gave, and you know, because it's language, it has grammatical rules and so on, but what God said, that's what he meant. All right? It doesn't mean that uh, there's not figures of speech, because that is a normal thing in language, figures of speech. Uh, this morning, uh, Pastor asked, I think, I think you're the first one to ask, about my wife, whether she was here this morning or not, because she didn't come in the same time that I did. And I said, she'll be in in a second. And then I looked at you, you looked at me, we laughed. And, well, relatively speaking, in a second. That's a figure of speech, okay? But the, the intended point of that was, yes, she'll be coming in. Just didn't come in exactly with me, all right? Um, but that, in a way, that's a figure of speech, whether uh, that's a technical figure of speech, but you understand what was meant by that, all right? And that's the same way with language. But we believe that grammar, what, what is said, and its historical context that it's in, that is the structure of interpreting the Bible. The, and you might say, okay, well, the opposite of that is a term we've used before called allegory. All right, which means everything that's said, people you know, give it some other meaning, some deeper, hidden, spiritual meaning to something. All right, that I, in other words, it really doesn't mean what it says. What it says represents something else. Okay? Now, there are things in the Bible that are allegorical, yes. They're spelled out in the Bible as to what they are, by the way. All right? For instance, in... Revelation here, we just saw that John saw in this vision Jesus in the midst of seven candlesticks and he holds seven stars in his hand, but then Jesus explains to John what those mean, what they represent. We're not left in the dark as to, you know, trying to figure out some deep, hidden, mystical thing about what that is because Jesus explains it himself. And by the way, that's what the Bible does. It's a self-revealing book. All right, uh, you know, God doesn't leave the meaning of his word up to human imagination. He wants us to know what he means. 
<laughs> I mean, he wants us to know what he says. Now, there are some things that are harder to be understood. Even the Apostle Peter in 2 Peter says that, all right? And specifically, he mentions some of the things that Paul wrote in his epistles. He said, of which some things are hard to be understood. Now, think of that's the Apostle Peter saying that. I mean, but they can be understood. Some things take more effort and diligence, yes, but they can be understood, all right? And the book of Revelation can be understood. It's not intended by God to be a smokescreen to keep us in the dark, all right? And so, as we look at these letters, all right, there are four things I'm going to mention here, and the, the fourth one with caution, Okay? How do we understand these letters? Well, basically, we're going to go with what the Bible itself says, all right? Because, and you'll see what I mean by that, I hope here, right? There's at least four and perhaps, or at least three, perhaps four levels of understanding to these seven letters here, all right? First of all, there's definitely a local, specific application, interpretation of these letters, all right? These specific Seven churches are being addressed by the Lord. And so the first level of understanding these letters are, this is what the Lord Jesus was saying to these actual, specific seven churches that existed at that point in time. Now, as far as I know, none of these seven churches exist today. But I could be wrong, but as far as I know, they don't. All right? But at that point in time, let's say... In A.D. 96, if that is the year that John wrote this, that's pretty much an agreed, you know, seems to be in that time frame. But at that time, there was literally a church in the city of Ephesus in Asia Minor. There was literally a church in the city of Smyrna in Asia Minor, and so on down the line. These were literal seven churches that existed. And that, for some of you, that might seem extremely obvious, and I hope it does. I'm not trying to beat a dead horse but I have a reason for saying this. I'll mention this more in just a minute. But that is, that's an obvious, should be taken for granted point that these letters are intended specifically for reasons for those seven churches to whom they're addressed. Just like the book of 1 Corinthians. It's addressed to the church of God in Corinth. Right? 2 Corinthians, the exact same way. And so what is written in the book of 1 Corinthians, God intended it exactly specifically for the church at Corinth. Now, it's not limited to them. We'll explain that here as we go on. But it is. That, that's the first level there. And, and for us today, some 2,000 years later, looking at it, we have to understand that. And the historical context of the church at Corinth and all that has a lot of bearing on that letter and what it is. All right? And so that's important. But then secondly, there are what I just termed here as church admonitions. All right, I've, I've kind of referred to this already, but I didn't refer to it in this manner. But obviously the Lord intends that, for instance, as he writes to the church at Ephesus here, and I keep using that one as an example because it's just right there close, all right? But he also intends that what he wrote to the church at Ephesus be paid attention to by every other church. Because what does he say in verse 7? And that's repeated in every single letter. He says, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the 
churches. So, in other words, at that time, that specific information was given to the church at Ephesus, but the Lord also intended that the church at Smyrna pay attention, the church at Pergamos pay attention, the church at Thyatira pay attention, the church at Sardis pay attention, the church at Philadelphia pay attention, the church at Laodicea pay attention, and as this book was circulated, the church at Corinth pay attention, the church at Thessalonica pay attention, all the way down to today that Eastside Baptist Church in Marystown, Ohio pay attention. All right? It's intended for the churches, the Lord's churches across the board, all right? That existed then, that existed down through history, that exists today. Pay attention, all right? It's for the churches. But then, not only for the churches, but we also can see from what the Bible says itself, what God says about this, that it's intended, it has a personal level of intention and application as well. Because he says what? He, that's a person, that's an individual, right? He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. So the Lord's not only speaking to the church at Ephesus, to the churches in general, broadly speaking, but he's also speaking to the individual. And how do we know that? Because that's what, the, that's what the Scripture specifically says. All right? So again, I hope you understand. I'm not making that up. I'm not just giving you some, you know, fancy-sounding outline or whatever, whether it sounds fancy or not. I mean, but I'm not... Ooh, I went backwards. I'm not making it up. It's what the Bible says right there. I mean, does everybody see that? I mean, it, it's clear, okay? So this is how God expects for it to be understood. It is directly, specifically written. And think about, think about it this way, okay? Maybe what's written to the church at Ephesus specifically may not be true for Eastside Baptist Church at this point in time. But there's still things there that we need to heed, right? So that we don't fall into whatever that is. And again, think of that in every one of these seven individual cases, okay? And at that time, think about this, all right? The Lord's addressing the church at Ephesus, but they probably weren't the only church that had that specific problem at that time. Of these seven, they were. So you could, you could step back for a second and ask the question, why did the Lord pick these seven churches? I've often wondered that and asked that. Why did he pick these seven churches? Because they're, they weren't the only seven churches. They weren't the only seven churches in Asia Minor. There were many other churches that we know about from the pages of the New Testament. And he could have picked any of them. He did these seven for obvious reasons to him. And I think that, again, because they represent the problems that are going to be common in churches. That at that time... The churches in, let's say, A.D. 500. The churches in A.D. 900. The churches in 1950. The churches in 2023. They represent a commonality of circumstances and problems, all right? And the Lord picked these seven for His reasons. And again, there's, it's interesting when you see a map encircling, but, but for reasons to Him. All right, so there is a personal application. He that hath ears to hear. Now, 
I'm going to mention this one, and again, I, I mentioned already that the fourth one I'm, I'm, I'm saying with caution, and I, I point this out for two reasons. I, I think there is the possibility of this here, but also, if you read much in Christian writings about this, the, 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 about Revelation, about these churches, this is the primary focus that's given to them. This prophetic view of these seven letters. All right? Now, again, I believe this prophetic view is possible, okay? And I'll explain a couple reasons why, but I want to emphasize, if I, if I were to holler it as loud as I could, I couldn't emphasize it enough in my mind, but it, this, this view is not stated in the book of Revelation. It's not stated per se like the other three levels that we saw. God doesn't say here on these pages that these seven letters will give you a prophetic overview of, of church history. He doesn't say that. He could have. But, okay, for sake of that, consider, all right, it is possible that these seven letters, in the order that they are, do present a foreshadow, because at that point it was future, but a foreshadow of big, uh, big segments of history that they do seem to kind of fit with. Now keep in mind, keep in mind, we're looking at this some 2,000 years later. And what do they say? Hindsight is 2020 vision. There's no indication that John took this this way or that anybody in that first century took this that way, okay? But it is possible, all right? And there's, there's a lot written about this. And again, I, 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 I make a big deal maybe of this because this is what is mostly emphasized. I don't know if anybody here has what's called the Schofield Reference Bible. I think Andy has the, the, the church publications uh, edition of that, but if you were to read the notes in Mr. Schofield's, his notes there, this is all he talks about with this, is these and how, but his, now keep in mind, this is predominantly perpetuated, this view, by those that don't have the, a, the same view of what the church is as what I do, and, and I hope that you would, and so on, but uh, their view of a church is different, okay? They look at the church as a, a mystical, universal thing that, you know, but I don't have that view of a church, but uh, I guess that was it. But <laughs> I'm not going to try to backtrack, but these seven letters taken in their given order only do seem to outline the past 2,000 years. Now, now, the problem I have with that is this, okay? Uh, I believe throughout history, that the characteristics of all these churches has always existed. I believe the characteristics of these seven churches exist today. I mean, in different churches. Not all churches today, uh, you know, are representative of the Laodicean letter, for sure, thankfully. Uh, there are churches today that are representative of the Philadelphian letter. There are churches today that are representative of the Smyrna letter. That's not us in America. We're not suffering persecution and being killed for our faith. That's, I mean, the, the, you know, God told them they were going to suffer. He told them they were going to die. 
Boy, that's encouraging. But you realize in the world today, there are churches that live in that environment? There are. That's foreign to us. And that's not necessarily our fault, I mean, but, uh, but that's foreign to us. But what I'm saying is, I think there is the possibility of saying, okay, and I think it's worth mentioning and talking about, but I, this is not what the Bible says about this, these letters. It does not say this is going to be a prophetic view of history. And you can expect that when you see uh, what you think is the Laodicean problem wide fold, that, that means the rapture is going to happen right then. We don't know when the rapture is going to happen, folks. I mean, we think, okay, it's got to be soon by, because of what we see around us and so on. But people, think about this, people in Europe, people of biblical faith living in Europe in the Middle Ages would have had the same impression. I mean, we don't know when the... It might be a hundred more years. It might be a thousand more years. I don't you know, necessarily think it's going to be, but... We don't know. That's the point. Okay? And uh, so we have to be careful and cautious in looking at these letters from this point of view is what I'm saying. And there's a few more uh, sentences there about that. But these were real churches that the Lord gave real words to in their context and they're appropriate for all the Lord's churches today. And every one, every individual who hears, should be paying attention. That's, that's the big gist of what these letters are about. So let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for your, your, your goodness to us. Lord, as we think about, you know, just kind of smitten in my heart here, as we think about believers, your people around the world today, whether it's in China, North Korea, in Islamic countries, or, per, you know, other other situations perhaps too, but people that are literally, literally suffering for their faith in you. Lord, I pray that you would give them an extra measure of grace today. Help us to remember to pray for them. And Lord, that you would just draw near to them. And, and uh, Lord, that they would draw near to you because I, I believe those people are precious in your sight. We, we, you know, we can't really relate to that here. In a, in a very specific way. But Lord, I pray you'd help us to be motivated, be faithful to you as we should be. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.